0: We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Hi everyone, we see you coming in here. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started here. We welcome everyone and thank you for your time. I know it's within towards the end of the day so we are so excited to have aaron hansen here with us um and i'll go ahead and get started here all right welcome everyone how to develop plc's for singletons and small schools webinar here with solution tree but then also with our edweb colleagues and then i'll go ahead and do a little reminder and if not an introduction to a mini course that is parallel to the book and the presentation that we're about to see today um go over to global pd teams tree.com slash singletons course and then lastly i do want to provide um not lastly but before that i do want to provide a reminder of the book go navigate to solutiontree.com slash plcs for singletons order today of this book that we are going to learn more about in this presentation and then lastly, we do want to pre- provide a brief um, bio here about Aaron. He is a nationally recognized presenter, author, and coach who empowers teachers and leaders to transform their schools. As a former principal, principal, Aaron led the transformation of White Pine Middle School in Nevada into a nationally recognized, high-achieving school. Aaron has worked with thousands of educators across North America and beyond, helping them improve their processes for PLCs, RTI, teacher and leader improvement, student and staff culture, and comprehensive school transformation. Aaron has also written and produced videos extensively all about school change, and he's obviously also an author. We're so excited, and I'm gonna go ahead and hand over this presentation to you. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Aaron, and for this presentation.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> thank you so much, Prisma, and thank you for EdWeb for hosting it. I'm super excited to be able to share some tips and tactics with all of you who are um, either s- serving in a small school or as a singleton teacher, or maybe someone who supports those. Um, we're going to start with a really quick poll, if we can. And, the, and so if you'll click in there, just what, what best represents your role? I'm just really curious to see who we've got on the call today um, on the webinar. And that'll help me sort of tailor my comments just a little bit, too. Okay, lots of folks here. Elementary teachers, secondary, not as not a ton of secondary folks quite yet. Um, Leaders, different levels of leaders, principals, district level others. And we're getting some folks to respond in the chat. Curriculum instruction, instructional coach. Fantastic. More instructional coaches, content specialist, literacy coach education consultant. Okay. Good. Um, yes. Fantastic. Um, oh my gosh, private independent school development, quality enhancement coach. So good. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking just a minute and give me a sense of who's here in the room today. Um, all right, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Like any good teacher, I need to make sure that you're clear about what our learning goals are for the time that we have. And we have just under an hour, which, um, which I wish we had like five hours, but that's okay. We're, we're gonna get through the content that we can. And really what our outcomes are and what our objectives are is to explore three different scenarios for implementing the collaboration process in a small school or as a singleton teacher. And those three scenarios are, are vertical teams. Okay. We'll talk about vertical teams. We'll also talk about interdisciplinary teams and we'll talk about those together because they're very similar in nature. And then we'll also talk about the support role as well and how we um, often have folks who are singletons in that support role and how we can help them best be successful um, both with their team and also individually. Um, And then lastly, hopefully, out of some of the, the real scenarios that I'm gonna share with you um, and stories that I'm gonna tell you about real people who have really done the work, um, you're gonna be able to start forming just the beginnings of an action plan for overcoming your unique challenges as a, a singleton um, or working in a small school, okay? Trying to follow the tenets of the PLC process. So here we go. Let's um, Let's first of all, define what we're talking about when we say singletons. And one of the greatest challenges in any collaborative team is finding meaningful learning partnerships for those singleton teachers. We're talking about folks who are the maybe they're the only art teacher in the building, the band directors, media specialists, foreign language teachers in a building. Um, Sometimes teachers in smaller schools or unique subject areas often struggle to find partners too. If you're the if there's only one physics teacher, you're a singleton. If you're in a small elementary school, Um, You might be the only third grade teacher. So you're a singleton or biology teacher or whatever it might be counselors. And I would even, I would argue principals are singletons too. Okay. So that's who we're talking about um, is, is those folks who um, they're the only ones who do what they do in their building. Okay. Um, But again, that we're, they're trying to follow the tenets of the PLC process. It makes sense, right? People say, Okay. We're better together than we are alone. It's better if we collaborate because we're not gonna get our kids to those high levels of rigor and expectation that we have for them unless we work together to do that. But how do we do that when I'm the only one who teaches what I teach? That's what we're talking about, right? Now, often when I'm working with groups and and in person with them, I ask them to to chart and then give me some answers. So I'm gonna ask you just to go ahead and in, in the chat box, if you would, Would you jot down or just write really quickly, as quickly as you can, what are some of the challenges that you currently face, or maybe the people that you support face in collaborating in a meaningful way, given your singleton situation? What are some of those unique challenges that you face to collaborate, um, given your singleton situation? And I'll read a few of these out for those who are going to be listening to this on the podcast, okay? Um, We all have different roles and responsibility. Um, content knowledge or lack of, yeah. I teach something and somebody teaches something else is a different content. Okay. Common time across the building. Um, I don't feel knowledgeable enough to give advice to somebody else who's teaching something else. Okay. Um, content doesn't align. Yeah. Okay. Common time. That, that's a big one and that's difficult. Um, okay. Uh, too many things. Not enough people. That's um, that's a common struggle in small schools. I remember showing up to a basketball tournament as a principal and um, getting to mop the floor before it started, throwing on a refing jersey and grabbing a whistle and refing games all day while I was doing supervision and getting and you know kicking kids off the stage who were playing around. Right? I get it. Small schools. We wear a lot of hats. Okay. Not engaged because they're singletons. Um, Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of things, and we could keep going for a long time and naming all these these unique situations. Um, but these these are a number of the challenges, and often, or, or many of you listed really content as one of the things that's holding you back. And understandably, you know, how do you collaborate with someone who doesn't teach the same thing that you teach, or maybe doesn't teach the same grade level that you teach? Um, now. Rick and Becky DeFore, who were um, mentors of mine and dear friends as well, one of the things that they wrote extensively about, including um, along with Dr. Bob Aker, is that what they said was the linchpin to the PLC process, okay, a linchpin to the PLC process is the the common formative assessments that we create as a team and administer as a team. Um, And Mike Schmoker said this many years ago um, in a similar way. He said, mere collegiality won't cut it. Even discussions about curricular issues and popular strategies can feel good, but go nowhere. The right image to embrace is a group of teachers who meet regularly to to share, refine and assess. That's the key word, right? That's the linchpin. Meaning if you pull it out, everything else falls apart. How do we assess the impact of lessons and strategies continuously to help increasing numbers of students learn at high levels? Well, the question really becomes, how do we do common assessments? How can we have a common assessment or or assess commonly and gather information commonly if we all teach different things? Right. That's the question. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, given all of the the challenges that we face and and that particular challenge I just posed, um, it, it's it's daunting, okay? It can be daunting. Um, it could make a presenter nervous. <laughs> I'm not nervous, and the reason I'm not is because I'm going to tell you about um, my job actually is really pretty easy. My job is to tell you about real people who have really done the work. I'm not a researcher. Um, I'm a practitioner. So I'm coming at this from really from practice and experience and being able to tell you about the things, not from a place of theory that we've researched, but um, really from a place of actual practice. And these are the things that we've done to have impact in the schools that we've worked in. So let's go ahead and get started Um, and talking about vertical and interdisciplinary teams. So With few, if any, common content teachers, how do we collaborate as part of a collaborative team? Our collaborative focus becomes aimed at common skills that transcend content. So instead of thinking about the things that we don't have in common, like our content, what are some of the things we do have in common? And there are certain skills that transcend content. In other words, they apply in multiple content areas. So let's talk about what some of those are, okay, as we go. Um, So, and actually before, um, before we do that, before I start to name some of what those skills are and what kids need in order to be successful and what Tony Wagner and Ted Dintersmith in their book, Most Likely to Succeed, call Um, an innovation economy, right? What do they need to be successful in this innovation economy? Before I name some of those skills, I want to help you think about, you know, what are some of those common skills that you might think of? So for example, let's let's just practice here really quickly, okay? I'm going to wave my little magic wand. It might look like a pen, but it's a wand, all right? When I get done waving my magic wand, each one of you is part of a kindergarten, first grade, and second grade team. Okay so this is a vertical team one kindergarten teacher one first grade teacher one second grade teacher now this team is focused on language arts or literacy skill development so my question to you within this team and chat box ready type these in okay what are some of the common skills our K1-2 team would focus on even if you're a secondary teacher think about your own kids when they were learning to read or you know, your nieces or nephews whatever but um What are what are some of the common skills kids need um, that we could focus on, even though the expectation is different for a five year old than it is for a seven year old? It's the same skill. Okay, let's talk about that. What are some things? Okay, phonemic awareness is right at the top of the list. Letter recognition. These are great. You're throwing a lot of things out there. Good job. Signs of reading fluency. Yes. Um, Problem solving vocabulary. Yes. Vocabulary is huge. Right, Especially in our poverty situations or English language learner situations, we definitely want to be giving kids words because that's how we understand abstract ideas is through words. So if, if when we give kids words, we empower them. Um, sequencing, critical thinking, that's good. Speaking and listening, cause and effect. Writing, okay, good. Very good. Um, okay. Conventions, grammar, good. Okay, we could keep going. There's a lot, isn't there, that we have in common. Okay. Um, Now, let's say, for example, okay, by providing these student performance expectations in each grade level within an essential skill, vertical teams can have rich collaboration about student learning. What does that really mean? Well, for example, we might create a rubric around, say, for example, the elements of a good sentence that is used by all teachers at all the different grade levels. It's a common rubric, but the expectation for performance on that rubric is going to be age appropriate. So the skills are common, even when the task is not. Let me explain or give you an example. So for those of you who can see this, what you're looking at is a really simple um, little rubric that uh, we call this just the star rubric. okay? And it's a sentence rubric. And where this came from, and by the way, this is version 1.0. It didn't change since when it was uh, created, but where this came from was a little school called Bluff Elementary School in the Four Corners area of Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. It's beautiful country, absolutely gorgeous, red rock country. Um, it's, it's amazing, but they have some challenges, okay? At the time, when I, was, when I started working with this school, they had struggled pretty intensely. Okay, So much so that they had had some designations by the state of Utah, which is where they were at. Um, As a turnaround school, they had they had to make some dramatic uh, dramatic improvements or else. Right. That was kind of the um, the situation. Along with that designation, they got a little bit of money. Okay, they decided to go to a PLC conference. And um, and again, a little bit more background about bluff just to to kind of just help you sort of set the stage here. At the time, when I first started working with them, they, over 50% of their students were considered homeless by national standards because they either lacked um, running water or electricity in the home. Many of of their kids were um, coming 50 miles one way to school, um, much of that on dirt roads um, just to get to school, okay? Coming off the uh, Navajo Indian Reservation to get to Bluff. Okay, some of the their 96 percent of their students were free, reduced lunch, Um, same number of students, um, English language learners because they speak Navajo and all. Okay, so now that being said, um, had a lot of challenges, some big challenges, right? Some um, difficult things that they were trying to overcome. Now, with that designation, they got a little bit of money. They went to a PLC conference down in Las Vegas, which isn't too super far from them. And they listened to Rick and Becky and a bunch of other folks um, talk about this idea of collectively committing to um, improving the learning of our students. And they got really serious about it. They came home and they started to to do the work. They unpacked their standards, which is PLC question number one, what do we want our students to know and be able to do? They they had all their standards, they listed them on the boards um, around their, their library. And we started to have these questions and, and, and conversations about what was essential and what wasn't. And then they got to the common assessment uh, question, right? what do we, How are we going to know if our students are learning what they're supposed to? And that's when I got a call. They said, hey, we're kind of stuck. This makes sense. Like we are the answer. No one's coming to save us. We understand that. But we don't know how to do this when there's only one teacher per grade level. Okay. So, I came, I, I drove out and, and sat down. The very first meeting I had was with the kindergarten, first grade, and second grade team. And I said, tell me what you've done so far. And they said, well, we've listed all of our standards. They're on the walls of the library right here, Aaron. And I said, yeah, okay, I can see them. Great. Um, I said, now, what have you done? And they said, well, we've decided what we consider to be essential. I said, that looks great. That's, you know, good work. I said, well, what's next? And they said, well, we don't know how to do common assessments. I said, all right. And I asked them the same question that I just asked you. I said, look, if you could wave your magic wand, and those of you who support singleton teams, this is a question that's worth writing down, okay? If you could wave your magic wand, what's one skill, one gift that you'd really like to give to your students, okay? What's one skill, one gift that you'd really, really like to give to your students, and they sat and they had some conversation. I even kind of stepped away for a minute. But then when I came back, they had come to consensus and they said this. They said, Aaron, honestly, you know what? If we could give our kids one gift, the gift would be that they could write decent sentences. If we could get them to write decent sen- sentences, that would be something. And I said, great. That's fantastic. Let's do it. And so in the very first meeting, we created this little, this little star chart or the star rubric. Okay. Now, don't quote me on the time frame because I don't remember. But the expectation, say, for example, for a kindergartner after, say, first semester or whatever it was, um, that they could write a two-star sentence, okay? But a second grader would be expected in that same time frame to be able to write multiple five-star sentences. Does that make sense? It's the same skill, but the rigor level just increases at an age-appropriate level, okay? Now, when they do their direct, when they did their direct instruction with Bluff. They would do that according to the grade levels, the kindergarten, taught the kindergarten kids, you know, and so on and so forth. Okay, but then when they did their common assessing and they gathered information about where their kids were at, let me ask a question. Do you think that there were some kids, say, for example, in first grade who still struggle with capitalizing the first letter in the first word of the sentence and some kids in second grade who might still struggle with that same skill, too? Yeah. So. What Bluff decided to do was to use their intervention block that they had set up within their school to provide on-demand intervention based on specific deficits, no longer basing their intervention or their instruction on the date of manufacture of the child, right, Um, but instead on their deficiency. What What was it that this particular kid needs? Because it's likely that somebody else needs that too. And regardless of the grade level, let's just group them so that we can efficiently intervene based on what those deficiencies actually are. And it was so interesting to watch bluff as they went through that transformation. In fact, they had a, a lot of success, that very first round and we we were really excited about that. And we, we had a little celebration. In fact, we had Navajo tacos, which were amazing. And we, uh, we, we just kind of looked at all of the, the results that the kids had had, and we, we literally looked at student work. You know, this is where this kid started. These are the kind of sentences he, sentences he was writing. Um, a few weeks later, these are the kinds of sentences he's, he's writing. Wow, look at this. Oh, my. That's so amazing, right? And, and we, we did. We celebrated and congratulated each other. And they asked me to say something at the very end of that little celebration. And the last thing that I said to them, I said, you know, great job. You did this because you came together. You created a common way of gathering information. And then you did something about it. Right. That's the bottom line. That's what PLCs is all about. Okay. You did something about it. And then I asked them this question. Could you do it again? Could you just do the same thing you just did and just do it again? And they said, yeah, we could, we could do that again. And in fact, we might even be able to do it a little bit better because we've learned some things as we did that the first time. So, well, great, let's do it again. And let's do it again and again and again, right? And that's literally how Bluff went from being one of the most um, you know, in distressed schools to becoming a highly celebrated school. They became a national model school. Over the course of about three years, they were invited to present at multiple conferences um, to tell their story and how they had gone through and made the transformations that they'd had. So there's an example, again, one example of a vertical team, um, and we're using an elementary example right now, but let's switch this and let's do a secondary one. You ready? Here we go. Imagine this time, so get chat box ready, okay? Okay. Imagine this time you're working as a member of a high school social studies team comprised of world history, U.S. history, and government teachers, okay? Now, this is a typical team in a smaller high school, okay? You might have one teacher who teaches each one of these contents. Now, these contents are very different, aren't they? They're vastly different. World history and U.S. history, they overlap for like a blip, but it's just a blip when it comes to world history. There's now. So the content is different, but the skills are often going to be the same. So what are some of the common skills in their chat box? What are some of the common skills this high school social studies team might focus on, even though they have vastly different content? I'll read some of the answers here. Um, determine reliability of sources. Yes. Analyzing primary sources. Yay, Natalie. Thank you for saying that. Um, Using evidence to support a claim, citing evidence. Yes, Taylor. Good job. Way to say that. That is huge. That's a superpower. Okay. Um, Use of DBQ. Yeah, good job, Davida. Um, Stephanie says reading charts, maps, or tables. Um, Marie says argumentative essay writing. Yes. Summarizing, supporting a claim. Good. Um, Analytical writing. Yeah. Inquiry so good there's so many answers here um cause and effect related to an event yeah very good reading comprehension yes ed you're absolutely right we learn to read within the context of the content don't we um if if our content teachers think that we're teaching kids how to read a scientific journal in english class that's not happening they have to learn it in science right um so yes absolutely reading uh, comprehension and, and literacy in general okay so good. There's so many great answers here. You're doing a great job. So let's imagine that, you know, we, we and we listed a few of these that I have up here on the screen. I think one of the ones I love to see when um, teams select this, and I've had multiple teams go in this direction, I would say probably at least half the time teams go in this direction, but the critical reading and analyzing of a primary source and being able to cite evidence to support a claim, right? That that set of skills really is a superpower. Okay? So a lot of teams will focus there first. And I've had certain schools, particularly alternative high schools, that have chosen that as <clears throat> their single focus as their entire school um, for a period of time. And it's amazing what happens when we get better at that one single set of skills, um, when we just focus on that, that one set of skills. It's amazing how it's sort of a a tide that floats all boats, um, if you know what I mean. So, all right. So let's just assume, for example, okay, that your our imaginary learning team decided to focus on critical reading and analyzing the primary sources as its most important common outcome. What would your next steps be as a team? Okay. Well, we could Do, do all students take the exact same assessment. They could but it might be content specific. Is there a different primary source for each content area? Maybe, but it doesn't have to be because an assessment is just a snapshot in time. So it doesn't have to be related to the content. Is the common assessment multiple choice or constructed response? There are no right or wrong answers, okay? The team could literally go in a a number of different directions at this point. Um, But the point is, if we pre-assess our students, our sophomores in world history, we pre-assess our juniors that might be in U.S. history or, or seniors in government. We pre-assess where they're at with that specific skill. We formatively assess along the way, okay? And then we do some kind of a summative or post-assessment. We can start to see over time if the common strategy that this team might have chosen, if it's working to improve student learning, or if one of the teachers has found a more promising practice than, that they can share with the others, Okay. Even if the content is vastly different, so so the whole point here is that we focus on skills. That makes sense. All right. Um, Now, a lot of times when I share this need for us to focus on skills, people often hear to me, or uh, often hear from me, that what I'm saying is that content doesn't matter, and that's not true. Content matters, but it matters for a different reason than a lot of folks think these days. See, content is free and ubiquitous, right? I can get, if you need a date or a fact from me, I can get it to you in 2.2 seconds. Hey, Siri, right? The Kids can get it to you in 1.6 because they're better at it than we are, all right? We have, and, and these kids grew up with, literally with artificial intelligent devices in their pockets with access to the world's information at their fingertips. And now with the advent of artificial intelligence becoming more and more accessible and better, they, they have the world's knowledge at their fingertips. Okay, it's, it's almost unfathomable. That's, um, to me at least, you know, I think about my own experience and, um, as a kid growing up. I remember, well, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I remember growing up, I was in the third grade and Mrs. Wilkinson, who was like nine feet tall in my third grade memory anyway, (laughs) I was scared to death of her. Um, She was very strict, but she was a good teacher. I got assigned a country report like, you know, every other third grader since the beginning of time. And I got Ethiopia and I was super excited because I knew nothing about Ethiopia. And when you're in the third grade, you're excited about everything. Right. And so I went home that night and I started to source my sources of information about Ethiopia. So what were my sources at the time? Well, I watched Tom and uh, Tom and Jerry and the Brady bunch. Those are the only two kid shows uh, on during the week. Okay. They didn't say anything about Ethiopia. I asked my sister if she knew anything about Ethiopia and she didn't, despite the fact that she, she knows a lot, right? She didn't know anything about Ethiopia. I asked, um, I asked my mom when she got home and she didn't know anything about Ethiopia. And I asked my dad when he got home much later from work and he didn't know anything about Ethiopia. Now, my parents didn't go to college. They're hardworking, blue-collared folks, but they wanted me and my sister to go to college. So they had purchased knowledge for the home. It was an expense. See, knowledge wasn't free then. You had to pay for it, okay? It was in the form of what? Let's see in the chat box. Some of you know, they had purchased knowledge for the home. What was it? Yeah, it was an encyclopedia, right? Yes. Encyclopedias. And it wasn't, it wasn't any old encyclopedia. It was Britannica, baby. Yes. Carleen got it. (laughs) It was Britannica. Now my kids, it's interesting. um, I I laugh about this, but it's true, right? Like my parents, and I kid you not, like this was, this was a, a serious expense. Like, my, my parents paid monthly installments to have knowledge in the home. They, they paid monthly payments for that to show up, to be there, okay, for us to have that. So I went to book E about Ethiopia, right? I pulled it off the shelf. I dusted it off, poof, and I opened it up to Ethiopia. And I was rich with information, absolutely wealthy with information, okay? There were three full paragraphs about Ethiopia, I copied them word for word, <laughs> and I got an A, okay? Now, it's a true story. <laughs> what happens now when a kid goes home and types Ethiopia into their Google machine? Yeah, I've done it, okay? I've done it. It's On, on Google alone, okay, it's over a million pieces of informational text that show up available to them okay over a million pieces of informational text see information is free and ubiquitous content is free and ubiquitous but and i'm not and again i'm not saying content doesn't matter it matters but it matters for different reasons so let me tell you another really quick story to illustrate what i'm talking about okay one day while i was an assistant principal i had a young man who got brought up to the office his name was will this his real name okay at the time he was 18 years old. He's a big kid. His teacher, who was a 28 year veteran social studies teacher, the one who brought him up, she sat down and she said, Mr. Hanson, you need to talk to Will. And then she, she said, when, you're, when he's ready, you can send him back to class, but you really need to talk to him. And I said, okay. And she went back to class. I let Will cool down for just a minute and I knew him. I knew Will really well, actually, because I had taught him in his freshman and sophomore English classes when I was, a, I was still a teacher. OK, he he had grown a lot, but I but I knew Will well. Will was a sleepy eyed kid who sat in the back of class. He was really smart and had a lot of great things to say, but sometimes you had to wake him up or make sure he was actually there to get him to say them. Right. Um, It was interesting because as I sat and I I started to engage Will in a conversation, I said, hey, Will, Um, and his whole attitude his entire high school career, and probably long before that, was this is a 12-year act of compliance that I must endure before I get out into the real world. Do you know kids like that? Okay. So as I sat with Will, I said, Will, what happened, man? Like, I can see you're upset. What happened? He says, well, Mr. Hansen, I punched a hole in the wall. And I said, Um, okay well, why did you punch a hole in the wall, Will? He says, because I got upset. I said, no, I gathered that. But why did you get upset, Will? And he said, well, because we were having this debate in social studies class. And I said, wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me you, sleepy-eyed Will, you got so fired up about a debate in social studies class that you punched a hole in the wall? And he said, well, yeah. And I said, okay, three things, Will. Number one, don't punch holes in the wall anymore. Okay, Mr. Hansen. Number two, you're going to stay after school. You're going to help the custodian fix it. Okay, Mr. Hansen. Number three, I want to see your paper when you get done writing it. Will got an A on his paper. Why? Because all of a sudden he cared about his grades? No. He didn't care anymore about that grade than he had for any other grades in the last 12 years. What did he care about? He cared about what he had to say, right? His, see, And the point is, his teacher was a master at delivering content as a vehicle by which she was able to help him develop his skills. See, Will was willing to sift through vast amounts of informational text to decide what was credible, to make sense of that, to make a synthesis and a claim about those multiple sources that he'd looked up, to be able to support that claim using evidence from all those sources, to be able to write, edit, revise, and even fix his grammar to make sure that his audience didn't discount him. And by the way, an audience that he understood and had empathy for, a 21st century skill, meaning he knew what they thought or how they thought the logic that would appeal to them, and he knew what they might feel in their hearts. So he knew how to craft arguments that were going to be compelling. See, those are the skills of the 21st century. And if you can do those skills that I just named, you're going to be successful, regardless of your chosen vocation. Whether you're going to be an auto mechanic, whether you're going to be um, a welder, whether you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, those skills if you can do those skills, you will be successful. Okay, now Tony or David um, David Conley, who's a researcher out of the universe, um, out of Oregon, um, the state of Oregon. I don't remember which university, but he's for over two decades now has done research on what it takes for kids to be able to go to college, basically, and to be successful in college. And he calls it college knowledge. For those of you who can see the list up here on the screen. Um, you'll see it's basically those same skills that I just named about um, Will and his willingness to go through and and work really hard to produce the essay of his life, right? Why? Why was he willing to do it? Not because of grades, not out of some other form of compliance uh, within the system, but out of true engagement because he was passionate about what he was learning about. And again, his teacher, truly a master teacher, okay, After 28 years, right, of teaching that content, it's not about the content. It's about Will and kids like Will and helping him and other kids develop the skill set that they need so that they can go out into the world and contend because nobody's going to hand them anything when they get out. But if you can do those skills I just named, then you can contend. Okay. So... Our collaboration doesn't need to be limited to content. In fact, when I work with large schools who have plenty of people within a department, I still tell them the same set of skills that they need to be working on. I still explain to them, listen, we can't get myopic about our content anymore. See, I had to tell you another real quick story. Um, I, had a, I was working with a, um, a middle school. Actually, it's an intermediate school. It's a, kind of a different configuration but anyway, they had it was a pretty good sized school, over a thousand kids, and I I met with their singleton teachers, their elective teachers, and I had a culinary teacher who came up to me afterwards, and she said, "Aaron, I get this idea of focusing on skills, but I, to be, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to push back. Is that okay?" And I said, "Yeah, go ahead." And she said, "I was hired to teach culinary. I'm I was hired to teach kids how to cook. I'm good." at that. And that's what my passion is. That's what I've done for a long time. And that's, that's who I am. And, and that's what I was hired to do. And I say, that's great. I understand that. That's fantastic. And I hope you are. And I hope you're, you continue to be really passionate about your content. Because for a lot of our kids, the only reason they will come to school is because of that content that you teach, right? Or because of that relationship that you have with them, A lot of our elective or singleton teachers are truly masters at being able to develop those kinds of relationships that keep kids coming back. Okay, now I said, okay, that's great. Like, by the way, I want to I want to take your class. I would love to take your culinary class. Okay, Um, she said, but that's what I was hired to do. And I said, all right, can I push back just a little bit? And I always ask for permission, right? And she said, sure. And I said, okay, let me ask you a question: How many of your kids? Are going to be, first of all, they, they're coming through your, your program. How many of those kids do you think are going to become professional chefs? And she said, Well, I mean, granted, Aaron, not, not very many. There's probably not very many. I said, Okay, fair. I said, But of those kids who are going to become professional chefs, how many of them are going to need a lot more training than just what they get in this class? And she said, Oh, like all of them. They'll have to have a lot more training. I said, Okay, fantastic. And I said, of those who become who go through all that training and become professional chefs, how many of them will stay professional chefs their entire career? And she said, I'm not really sure. And I that's I kind of piped in. I said, well, I do know Um, economists now estimate that this generation will change not jobs, but careers somewhere between four to seven times. Okay four to seven times, not jobs, but careers, entire careers. Many of you can probably relate. Many of you are probably on a second career. Okay. It's interesting, right? And so I said, and she said, okay, I understand what you're saying now. I said, yeah, see, in a public middle school or intermediate school where she's at or, or in a public institution, our role, our job is to make sure that our kids have a foundation of skills upon which they can stand as they go out in the world and contend. That's our our true and fundamental purpose, regardless of what their chosen vocation is going to be. Because whatever it's going to be, they're going to need a lot more training than what they get just in um, our K-12 system. They're going to have to have a lot more training than just that. So our job is to make sure that they have a foundation of skills upon which they can stand and become truly learners who can learn, unlearn, relearn the things that they need to in order to be successful. Okay, all right. So Conley's list says basically the same thing. The last one he has on there is solving complex problems with no obvious answers. Um, Okay, when we connect content with purpose, okay, and passion, that's when real magic happens. That's when kids like Will write the essay of their lives. And they remember how to do it because they were vested in the process. They were truly engaged. It's what they were trying to do. They weren't just trying to pass the test and promptly forget everything, which this generation, by the way, is exceptional at because the information is so readily available. Okay? All right. All right. So again, we talked about Conley and his um, Tina Cech, who is another um, researcher out of Stanford, has done some similar type of work around what the most enduring skills really are that our kids need to be learning. Um, she cross-referenced all of the mathematical, um, the mathematic practices, the student capacities um, in language arts and. Um, yeah, and, and the practices in math and science, and she cross-referenced those to come to the conclusion about what, um, what are those skills that are cross-cutting? In other words, the skills that are going to transcend content and that are needed. And right in the center of her Venn diagram says, build a strong base of knowledge through content-rich text. Okay, that's part of that literacy, but also the content itself. And then read, write, speak grounded in evidence. Okay, as part of what Will was able to do, construct viable arguments and critique reasons of others, and then engage in argument uh, from evidence, okay? Those are the skills that are right at the center, right at the heart um, that transcend content. So if you're wondering, okay, where do we start? If we have an interdisciplinary team, where would we start? Where would we wave our magic wand and say, this is a skill we'd really like to give to our students? And somewhere in the center, that might be a good place to start, okay? Um, yeah, I told you I was telling you stories. Let me tell you another story here really quickly, okay? Um, this is another interdisciplinary team. This is a school-to-careers team. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, one day I was working with a high school, and I, as I met with the principal, I said, hey, Aaron, today I'm going to have you work with the school-to-careers team. And I said, okay, sounds great. And said, um, just so you know, they're a little bit resistant to the process. <laughs> and that's like the understatement of the world, right? <laughs> um, I, walked into, I walked out to the vocational building, you had to go to a completely different building. I walked into the building and as I walked into the classroom, there were five uh, teachers who were part of this team. One was a welding teacher, one was an auto shop teacher, another was a wood shop, another was ag science, and then there was a graphic design teacher, okay? I walked in and the moment I walked in before I even sat down, um, the welding teacher was sort of the self-appointed spokesperson and said, hey, Aaron, you seem like a nice enough guy and no offense. It's never good when somebody says no offense, right? (laughs) Prepare to be offended. (laughs) I said, no offense. You seem like a nice enough guy, but this is absolutely a waste of our time. It really is. Every Wednesday, we're expected to sit here, but we are busy. We have a lot of things going on. And I said, well, tell me about those things. Tell me about your programs, right? And they started to talk to me and they said, yeah, well, and, and they kind of bragged on each other. In fact, the welding teacher was, had won awards. And if kids stayed in his program um, after four years, they would graduate with, um, as certified welders with certificates, different certificates, um, so that they were prepared and ready to go out and get high paying jobs. And in this very at-risk community where this high school is at, This was huge, right? Like this was this was a really big deal. Um, because a lot of these kids, honestly, if they could get a job like that, it would change the trajectory of their lives and the lives of their family. Okay. But and I said, okay, that's great. Like, congratulations, you know, thank you for all the work you've done. And and that's amazing. I said, but can we just visit for a little bit? And they said, ah, okay, fine. And I said, well, what are your pain points? What are some of the things that you struggle with in your community or with your school or with your kids? And they started to talk about some things, right? I said, okay, well, if you could wave your magic wand, remember, that's the question. If you could wave your magic wand, what's one skill, one gift you'd really like to give to your students? And they started to talk and they talked about those pain points a little bit more. And they, and they said, you know what, Aaron, our kids can weld like nobody's business. They're really good at that. And I said, that's great. They can fix cars like, you know, nobody's business. They're really good. I said, okay, great. I said, but what do they struggle with? He said, honestly, sometimes what our kids struggle with is knowing how to take direction from a boss, knowing how to collaborate well with others, knowing how to dress appropriately for the workspace, knowing how to um, sometimes like finish certain projects that they've started. I said, yeah, what else? And they said, and honestly, Aaron, even though our kids have the skill set to get jobs, they often get passed over. And I said, why is that? This is because they don't know how to interview, they don't know how to fill out a job application, and they don't—they definitely don't know how to do a resume. And so, and and to be honest with you, Aaron, we think a lot of times employers pass our kids over, in in particular, about um, because of the way that they show up in these in these particular interviews. And I said, "Well, do you want to change that? Do you want to change that?" And he says, "Yeah, we would love to change that." I said, "Well, then let's do it." See, and true to their nature okay? True to their nature, they caught fire. It wasn't that they were resistant to the process of collaborating. That wasn't the problem. They were just reluctant to the process, okay? And the reason why is because they just didn't see the value yet. They didn't see the value. They cared deeply about their kids and their community. They worked their tails off. And so I asked that question, what's the skill you'd really like to give to your students? And what they settled on was um, to be able to get through the interview process, okay? And I said, that's great, let's do it. They created some common rubrics. In fact, they used their standards because it's in their standards to create those rubrics, okay? And uh, they taught kids how to produce a resume and to fill out a job application. And then they started to practice those, um, those interview skills by doing mock interviews, even down to how you shake hands and look somebody in the eye, right? And the way that they did their common assessing and created some inter-rater reliability among themselves as teachers is they would take their phones, they put them in a, in a red solo cup, right, hit record, and they would record these, um, these interviews that they would conduct as practice interviews with their students. They would bring those videos back to their PLC team and have conversations with one another and say, well, I think this one's proficient. What do you think? they'd say, no, no, because it doesn't do this. It's not quite there yet. Let me, let's look at this one. And they would have these conversations back and forth, say, okay, this is what proficiency looks like. They housed those videos in a Google form where they were accessible for all the teachers. But they also made them accessible to whom? Who do you think they also shared those with? Yeah, with the students themselves, right? Why? Because as Rick Stiggins says, if you can see the target, you can hit the target. If you know what it's supposed to look like, you can do it. So <clears throat> something that welding teachers or, or auto tech teachers or, or woodshop teachers are really good at is using models, okay? Here's what your weld's supposed to look like when you get done. They did the same thing with interview skills. Now, <clears throat> it was so fascinating, and this is a, the part of the story that I love to tell the most. When I came back later that year and had a conversation with that same team they actually, um, it was a whole, whole staff together. They came kind of running up to me and they would say, Hey, we're so excited. Aaron. we got to tell you what happened. I said, yeah, tell me what's going on. And they said, you know, for our summative assessment, what we did is we conducted those same mock interviews that we've been practicing nearly all year long. And I said, okay, that's great. And what happened? Like, tell me what were the results? And they said, yeah, they were a lot better, but that's not the cool part, Aaron. And I said, well, what was the cool part? They said, well, we conducted those, we didn't conduct those uh, mock interviews as the summative. Instead, what we did is we had interviewers of, uh, from real employers within the community from those industries come in and conduct those mock interviews. And Aaron, we literally had kids getting hired out of those mock interviews for high paying jobs so they could pull up their bootstraps, go to work and achieve the American dream. I don't know what's more essential than that. That's PLC question one, right? Is what do we want our kids to know and be able to do? What's absolutely essential for them? See, you can't collaborate about everything that you teach. You don't have time for that. But there are certain skills that are enduring. There are skills that transcend content regardless of what your chosen vocation is going to be. And those are the skills that we need to focus on and collaborate around and make sure that every single one of our kids leaves our system with. When they graduate from high school, it has to mean more than just time served when they get that certificate. It has to mean that they have a set of skills that they are empowered with so that they can go out into the world and contend, claim their space and contend because nobody's going to hand them anything. Okay. All right. Um, I gotta move I gotta move thank you so much you guys are doing amazing couple comments and the, um, and there's some questions too we'll try to get to those if we can um, I'm gonna take <clears throat> I'm gonna switch the uh, to our last outcome which is singleton suit support all right and just give you one last story and this one is one that I experienced when I was um, still a teacher teaching high school English and this was with uh, a lady that we all call mama T okay and mama T was our um, our uh, our drama teacher in that small high school that I worked in and she was amazing. She's like four foot nothing but like mighty, if you know what I mean. She just had one of the most vivacious personalities and I can't help but smile every time I think about her. Um, now, we had done some work as an English team and made some, some impact with our students around some writing skills as a, a true PLC team. Our principal took notice and said, hey, we should all do this work of collaboration, that makes sense. And so on our English team, there were three people on our English team. We, uh, we got three new people to be part of that team. First of all was Mama T. She's the drama teacher. Then we had the computers teacher who joined our English team. And then we had the um, librarian or media specialist who joined our team. Now, um, there wasn't a lot of direction that came from our boss and we really didn't talk about it. We just said, OK, welcome to the English team, right? It was the English team. Now, um, we sat down, we looked at some of our data for the year from the state assessment and we started to get to, uh, get to work. And I remember we, as we were looking at that data, we decided as a team that we were going to focus on conventions. We wanted to try to help our kids speak and write better and, and use more, uh, proper conventions. And I remember when we made that decision, okay, Mama T said this. She said, fellas, we were all male English teachers for some reason, I don't know why. But anyway, she said, fellas, she said, that's a goal that I can get behind. I can get behind that goal. And I said, I said, what do you mean, mom? She said, well, for our kids to get high paying jobs and to keep those jobs, they have to be able to write well and they have to be able to speak well. And that's a problem in our rural community. That's a problem. And I said, OK, great. And we didn't think anything of it. And we just motored forward, started to create some common formative assessments that we were going to use. And I remember I, uh, I was teaching class a couple weeks later. I was teaching my freshman class that was right after lunch. It was one of those classes, if you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. And now, it's the best strategy I had at the time. I know better now. Okay. But it was all I had at the time. I was standing at the front of the room and I was lecturing about parts of speech. How do you think that was going? Yeah, it was terrible. It was absolutely horrible. (laughs) Like I hated it as much as the kids did, but I was chasing behaviors. I remember I had a a young lady named Siobhan. She raised her hand. She raised her hand up high. And I said, yes, Siobhan. And she did the head bob thing back and forth and she put her hand on her hip. And she said, that's not how mama T showed us how to do it. And I said, what do you mean? She says, well, that's not how she showed. I said, well, come on up. You show me. She came up. Siobhan fi- fixed my grammar on the board. She wrote something. And I, I, was, I was like, what just happened? <laughs> like, like that, That's wild. Like, What just actually happened? Two days later, we had our PLC team meeting. I sat down with Mama T um, before the meeting even began. And I said, hey, you got to tell me what's going on. Because of all people, she stood up. She corrected. And she says, well, Aaron, here's what I'm doing. As we go through and we practice our plays, as we rehearse and we do the blocking, we practice, you know, where kids are supposed to be standing at different times. I said, yeah, yeah. She says, as we do that, I use those words in context. I said, what do you mean? She says, I tell him, I say, look, when you hit this adverb, you need to be doing these actions right here. When you hit this article, you need to be standing right here. When you hit this noun, I want you to say it like this. I was gone the rest of the meeting, absolutely blown away. Because in my mind, I said that and I just kept thinking about what was actually happening. Because what was happening was that Mama T was teaching something that kids traditionally hated. But she was teaching it within the context of something that they absolutely loved. And part of the reason why they loved it is because they loved her and she loved it. So therefore, they loved it. See, that's the power of the singleton. And the, the singleton who supports, right? What did Mama T say when we made that decision that we were going to focus on that? She said, I can get behind that goal. That goal matters. I'm willing to support that, even though it has nothing directly related to my content. It's not about me having better performances in our gym cafetorium, right? That's what small schools have. Um, it wasn't anything about that. It was about helping kids develop a set of skills that they need to go out into the world and contend. So now who am I not telling you about in this story? I'm not telling you about the media specialist and I'm not telling you about the computers teacher. Why? Because if I'm being honest, they had absolutely no impact on our work whatsoever. And we had no impact on their work whatsoever. They were polite, they were kind, they brought treats when it was their turn to meet in the meeting, you know, but we really didn't impact each other's work, and we really didn't impact students as a as a result. What was the difference with Mama T? The difference was commitment, right? She understood it, she saw it. And I kid you not when I say this, I've really thought about this for a long time. I believe that Mama T had a greater impact on our students reaching our SMART goal that year than I did. And it was my subject. Okay? that's the power of the singleton who supports because they're often like mama T, masters at relationship at engagement at delivering content in meaningful and engaging ways they can help kids see those connections to those essential skills that they need in order to be successful in life so folks um, i'm looking at our time here and I have used it all <laughs> um, Um, I'm so excited. Like I said, I hope this has helped for some of you. My question is, I I, uh, go through a couple of these last slides really quickly, is my first question is why, okay? Before jumping into change, my first question that I think we need to answer is why would we even engage in the first place? Why would we go through the process? And my answer is this. It's because we're trying to develop a system where regardless of a student's background, their race, religion, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter, that they can come to a public institution and get the education that they need so that they can stand on their own two feet and contend in the world. Okay, That's our role. That's our purpose. And it can be done. I wish I could tell you so many more stories. I have so many more stories over the last decade of working with small schools and singleton um, teachers and helping them really make some dramatic differences for their kids. Um, here's a, I, I want to share this really quickly if I can. Um, here's a newsletter sign up. If you want to click with your phone real quick um, and just take a picture of that, I'll hold that up for just a second. If you want to take a picture of the newsletter, then you'll just be on my mailing list and you'll get a newsletter from me. Um, some of that will be about this book, but also some of it will be about my new book, um, which is called Hero Makers. And I'm super excited about that book. Um, it's gonna help teachers empower their students to take ownership of their learning journey. Um, that book will be out in March or April, somewhere in that range. Um, but again, if you take a, a picture of that little QR code, it'll send you to a sign-up sheet and you can get, you can get on there. So I'm um, super excited for that. Um yeah and my Twitter handle is Aaron Hansen Hansen with an E um and a 77 seven, okay Aaron Hansen 77 seven. um all right folks thank you so much i'm going to hand it back over to Prisma thanks again for being here and god bless and god, uh good luck on your journey
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, um, Aaron. This has been such a great presentation. And I'm sure all the stories that you've included, um, which are personal to you, but also very, um, very much relevant to the people that were on here. um, And I'm sure they resonated to everything that they deal with every day. So thank you so much for providing those because real life experiences are what's impacting people's work. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Um, We do want to remind people if, here, let me go to the next one. Uh, We don't have time for Q&A, but any questions that um, are for uh, Aaron can be provided to him towards um, after the webinar, um, Ms. Regina will get them to him. Uh, But we do want to provide just like a reminder for anybody who wants to continue learning with Aaron, um, go ahead and navigate to solutiontree.com slash Aaron Hansen. Uh, we would be providing that for you. So thank you again to everybody who's still on here um, and you as well. Erin, um, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Prisma. Thank you, EdWeb, for, for hosting.
0: We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.